Our reading this morning is from 1 Kings, chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mehulah, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there, and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. 
What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, morning. Let me have my welcome. If we've not met, my name's uh, Matt, Matt Fuller. It'd be lovely to do so. Let me uh, pray, and then we'll jump into 1 Kings 19 together. Our Father, this is perhaps not the story we expect at this stage in the story of Elijah, not after the triumph of 1 Kings 18, but it's here, and it's here because we need to learn from it. He's both an example and a warning to us. He is a type of the one who would come, the prophet we need, the Lord Jesus Christ, to help us us understand what's going on here and why it's wonderful news for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Now, actually, it is a bit tricky. What are we meant to make of Elijah here? And actually, just to be fair with you, the, the, the people who've written much about this, they all slightly disagree how critical they are or how supportive they are of him. What do you make of Elijah here? So last time, if you were here over the last, uh, last week or two, we looked at chapter 18. And Elijah's had, a, you know, he's been brilliant, he's been magnificent. He's heroically taken on all the prophets of Baal, so 450 of them, this miserable, miserable cult involved in child slaughter and had led the people uh, into depraved behavior. He's taken them on and he's defeated them in a very public sort of contest. It's been magnificent. So here is the day after his, what would you call it, election victory, his cup final victory, his triumph. It was brilliant last time. He'd administered justice. He seemingly led a revival of the whole nation. And at the end of chapter 18, almost every dream he could have possibly had as a prophet seems to have come true. If you just sort of set up your career path as Elijah, that's it. It's all gone well. And in chapter 19, he just wants to die. And it's a very different mood to chapter 18. Now, many come to this chapter and read it and and are... Well, to be fair, just critical of Elijah. They say, well, you know, he did well in chapter 18 and, and trusted the Lord. Uh, and here, well, he's just taken his eye off God, really. He's faithless in chapter 19. If only he'd seen with the eyes of faith again, he wouldn't have had this miserable downturn in uh, his emotions and his experience and wanted to die. I, I'd want to suggest I don't think that's right. And that I don't think it is completely abnormal to go from how you might call it, the the heights of Carmel to feeling glum in the valley. I don't think that is abnormal. If you're a prophet such as Elijah, if you're someone a bit more ordinary, like you and me, I don't think that's abnormal. I think to go from the highs to the lows is familiar to many. And I think one of the things you see in 1 Kings 19 is that when we're overwhelmed... The Lord is tender, and he'll give his prophet what he needs to carry on ministering. And in a lesser way, he'll give us what we need in those moments. Now, if you are joining us today, we're in this series then in uh, uh, 1 Kings, 
Uh, we call it a tale of two thrones, really. This section of Elijah, the Elijah narrative, you, you have the Lord, the, the, the true and living God. Uh, and there's the, the, the religion of Israel at the time is Baalism. They follow Baal, made up God, not true, but involves very demanding. Wants to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice your children if you want blessing. I'm the one who will give you uh, rain and help your crops grow. And, and it's set up as a sort of contest between the two. And as I say, last time, it was very, very obvious triumph. But the whole thing's been a bit of a roller coaster. So if you have been here, chapter 17, Elijah's on the run. He fears for his life. He's desperate. He's, but God provides what he needs. Chapter 18, all is triumph. And then chapter 19, we get this. And in many ways, we could just do without it. Because after the triumph, it just looks like Elijah fails. But again, I just think the Bible is a realistic book. It's honest about who we are, and about who God is. And it isn't just one smooth pathway here. In chapter 19, Elijah is overwhelmed, but the Lord is very tender with him. That's good to know. Now, there's far too many words on your sheet, but let me just try and work through it. We're going to say, Elijah despaired of life, but the Lord raised him up. Second, Elijah despaired of Israel, the nation, the Lord raised him up. And then we'll see, I think, lastly, briefly at the end that the Lord raised up Jesus too. Let's work, th- work through it. First of all, in these verses, chapter 19, verses 1 to 5, Elijah despairs of life. Chapter 19, 1 to 5. Now, what's happened? Now, King Ahab, he's the king of the nation. He's been a follower of Baal. He's just seen his false gods mocked and defeated in chapter 18. Uh, it goes home to his wife. First, chapter 19, verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel, the queen, everything Elijah had done. And how he'd killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Well, Ahab may be king of Israel, but he doesn't rule at home. His wife rules at home. And so he gets home, tells his wife what's happened. She's not impressed. What are you playing at, you muppet? And um, it's a bit of a tangent, if you allow me to make it. But you do wonder how Ahab behaves here. Chapter 18, he's seen that the Lord, Yahweh, is God and Baal is not. That has been clearly demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt. And yet he goes home and his wife says, well, we follow Baal. Yes, dear, we follow Baal. And you think, what? Ahab, you had every bit of proof you could possibly have ever wanted or desired that God is, the Lord is God and he is real, and yet you still don't follow him. How can you be presented with such compelling evidence and still not follow him? And he'd go, well, his wife. But I don't know what he'd say to you. But people can be stubborn in the face of evidence. Let me just dwell on this a moment. I was uh, reading this week. This is very sad. You know, Robert De Niro is campaigning in the States against the MMR vaccine, which for most of us in the UK seems very bizarre that he would do such a thing because uh, he's funded and supported a a, a documentary by uh, Andrew Wakefield. If you remember in the UK, Andrew Wakefield was the doctor who was proved to be a complete charlatan. Uh, He said MMR was causing autism, Uh, But then it was demonstrated legally that he was 
paid to produce that evidence and that he's completely wrong, that every report says that's complete nonsense, that everyone should get their children this vaccine, and so he's struck off the medical register and is a complete disgrace, and you won't find any doctor supporting him in the UK. Now, Robert De Niro is supporting him. I mean, why would you do that? Well, it's very sad. De Niro has a son with autism. And, it, and he wants someone to blame. Just can't quite cope with this. Perhaps can't cope with the fact that sometimes things happen in life. They go wrong. So he wants someone to blame. He wants, someone to, he wants something to direct his anger at. And so despite all the evidence, despite not finding a doctor that will support it, he'll back Andrew Wakefield because it just gives him something to hold on to in spite of all the evidence. Oh, it's a very sad case. Of course it is. But that's just true. People will do that sometimes in spite of all the evidence. They'll just cling to their own belief because that's what they want. And people do that with Christianity. They won't engage with the evidence. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is compelling. It's compelling. And yet people maybe even look at it and go, yeah, whatever, and just cling to what they want. Cling to their own pattern of life. Ahab does that here. You'll never get a more compelling case that the Lord is God than Ahab saw. And yet he still doesn't follow the Lord. So don't be surprised if you see that in people. Maybe you observe it in yourself. Despite compelling evidence for the truth of the Christian faith, you won't, won't engage. This requires you to change. Anyway, it's a tangent really. But anyway, let's go back to Elijah. Elijah, Elijah is, well, we're told, chapter 19, verse 3, Elijah is afraid. Perhaps the footnote is a, is a more neutral translation. Elijah saw. He saw the writing on the wall. He saw the way the wind was blowing, and so he runs. Now, where does he go to? He goes to Bathsheba. Uh, he's running to a different kingdom. So he's in Israel. That's where Ahab is king. He runs to Bathsheba in the south. It's a different land. It's Judah. So you can sort of see it. Uh, ooh, there he bounces all the way down. It's a bit like um, uh, you're in the UK and you're on the run, so you go to France. You go to Calais, about 100 miles, about the same distance. So he's run away. He's a safe distance away, living in a different country now. And then verse 4, he goes another day's journey into the wilderness. Well, that isn't for security. He's secure already. Why does he go into the wilderness? Verse 4, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I may as well be with them. I may as well be dead. It's a slightly odd scenario, isn't it? He's run away to save his life and then says, now kill me. See, he's unwilling to let Jezebel win. Because he does, he trusts, he doesn't want the Lord's name to be dishonored. And yet he gets here and just says, oh, do you know what? I've had enough. I just want to go now. Now again, some are very critical of him. Oh, Elijah's wanting to die. You know, no believer should ever do that. Do you know what? The Lord doesn't rebuke him. Does he get told off for saying that? Now, at the risk of a very reductionistic or simplistic observation, despair, such as Elijah has here, despair to the point of death. Oh, it's always a mixture of things, isn't it? 
I'm being utterly simplistic, but it's a mixture of our constitution. Some of us just temperamentally lean towards blue, physiologically lean towards that way. There's a bit of temperament in there, no doubt. There's circumstances are always going to contribute to how we feel, of course, and then there's how we respond. It's a mixture of all those things. But let me just point out a few things about Elijah's circumstances here. Fairly obvious ones, I would have thought. He's exhausted. Physically, he's traveled quite a long way. Emotionally, he's coming down off a seriously intense experience. I've never had the experience of taking on 450 people and summoning fire from heaven and then summoning rain. I've never done those things uh, when everyone, when you've got a nation watching me do so. I imagine that's a fairly intense emotional experience that he's come from that, and it's the next day. That's fairly normal. Most ministers I know find Sundays quite intense and want to resign on Monday morning. By lunchtime, it's fine. But, you know, that's just, you know, that's just how we're wired as humans, isn't it? You have emotional intensity, and afterwards, you just sort of collapse. It's, he's had that sort of experience. He's exhausted. He's disappointed. I've led the nation in revival. Oh, nothing's changed. Oh. Oh. And he's lonely. He'll declare twice later in the chapter that he's the only one left. Well, it's not true. There are others. He knows. If you hear chapter 18, Obadiah has hidden a hundred prophets away in the caves. And he knows that. He knows he's not alone. But he feels lonely. And often that's that way, isn't it? When we get a bit blue, we push everyone else away. No one understands. It's just me. Go away, everyone else. Operate sometimes. So he's exhausted. He's disappointed. He's feeling lonely. And he despairs. Look, it may well be I'm dwelling on this longer than the text encourages, but let me say this again. The Bible is a realistic book. And if you're exhausted, disappointed, feeling lonely, then you may well be overwhelmed by despair, and don't be surprised at that. It happens. Don't be shocked. Don't be thrown by that. And often our circumstances bring us to the point of despair, and then we feel associated with that, a sense of spiritual isolation. Where is God in all this? Kind of normal. It's not that surprising sometimes when we operate that way. Is God there? Does he love me? Circumstances are so overwhelming. Well, here's Elijah. He despairs of life, and so, verse 5, he lays down to die. That's what he wants. Elijah despaired of life, but the Lord raised him up. There's a sort of little resurrection scene, I think, perhaps here. So verse 5, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And uh, there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Lovely. So just like in chapter 17, when he had nothing and was alone and bread and water was provided here again in chapter 19, the Lord is providing for him. It's nice. It's fresh bread. Mm, We all have fresh bread, not stale stuff. It's cooked over hot coals by an angel. That's sort of nice a la carte sort of service. Although there may be a sort of hint of the only other time you get hot coals presented by an angel is Elijah when Elijah, excuse me, Isaiah when Isaiah is commissioned, Isaiah 6, maybe something to do without a commissioning, don't know, not certain. Anyway, this is good. This is good. Verse 7, the angel returns. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, more, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So it looks like here the angel is encouraging him to go on the journey. 
Now that matters for how you read the question that's going to come in uh, verse 9. Okay, I think here the angel is saying, off you go, build up your strength because you've got a decent journey ahead of you. Not a rebuke, I think, when we get to the question. Let me mention verse 9. We'll get to this question in a moment. But what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think it's a rebuke because the Lord has told him to go on this journey. So here, just very practically, the Lord meets Elijah in his despair and meets him with tenderness. When we're overwhelmed, the Lord is tender. Gee, there are, I just wondered, and went, there are hundreds and hundreds of paintings of this scene. It was clearly, it's captured uh, the imagination of uh, many. Here's one, Ferdinand Bull. I don't know how clear it is on this screen. I should have picked a gaudier one, probably, with um, technicolor. But there's, I mean, it's just sort of utterly representative, sort of 17th century Dutch painter. There it is, Elijah, just being tended to. It clearly it fires people's imagination. There are hundreds of paintings of this scene. Elijah says, take my life, and he lays down to die, and the Lord raises him up again. And we'll sing a Psalm 103 in a moment, but doesn't it make you think, praise my soul, the King of heaven, Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. He knows our feebleness. He gets it. When we're overwhelmed, the Lord is tender. So look, Elijah despaired of life, but the Lord raised him up. Let's pick up the pace. Secondly then, Elijah despaired of Israel, but the Lord raises him up. Now where does he go? Verse 8. Elijah gets up and uh, uh, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a pretty potent bit of bread and water right there. But anyway, he uh, traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, presumably the Lord has told him to go to Horeb. That isn't an obvious place for Elijah to go. If we get our map back up again, so he's gone to Beersheba, and then he's gone all the way to the Sinai Peninsula to, uh, to Mount Horeb. That's quite a long journey. Uh, Horeb is a range of mountains, and Sinai is the most prominent one within it. So that's why the Old Testament can sometimes use the two of them interchangeably, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, Horeb the mountain range, Sinai the, the most prominent mountain. Now, He was safe in Bathsheba. He was in a different country. He's got all the way to Mount Sinai. That's a long journey. It wasn't easy yet to take him there. Why has he gone all the way there? And he's taken 40 days and 40 nights to get here. Well, that's interesting. In Exodus and into Numbers, was God's people, Israel. They travel for 40 years in the same wilderness. Sinai. Elijah's gone back to Moses' mountain. It's where in Exodus 3, Moses meets the Lord in the burning bush or the non-burning bush. It's where in Exodus 19 onwards, the Lord comes in fire and thunder and gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, and gives the law to Moses. It's where a covenant is made between God and Israel. 
a promise, a commitment. I will be your God, you will be my people. Yes, and we will follow you and we will obey you. So it's the sort of, it's the, it's the legal mountain, Moses' mountain, covenant mountain. So it is as if, why is Elijah going there? It's as if Elijah is going back to the courtroom. He's going back to the Supreme Court and saying, Lord, there's a problem because Israel has broken the law. That's why he's gone back to Moses' mountain. And the Lord asks, verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think it's annoyed and annoyed, what are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord has brought him back. Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here? I think the question could be rephrased or paraphrased slightly. Elijah, what brings you back to Covenant Mountain, where the Israelites promised to obey me and follow me, now that the Israelites have disobeyed and broken the covenant? What brings you back to this mountain of law, of justice, where I've told you to come, Elijah? That's the sort of question, I think, being asked. And you see Elijah's response. Again, people are critical of him here, but I think that the majority of what he says is about the Israelites, isn't it? So um, um, Elijah's response, uh, verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but the Israelites... The Israelites, they've what? They've rejected your covenant, they've torn down your altars, and they've put your prophets to death with the sword. They've done these three things wrong, and I'm the only prophet left. Well, not technically, but anyway, um, that's how he feels. And so the Lord says to him, verse 11, go and stand out in the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. That's very like Moses again, isn't it? Moses, Exodus 34, the Lord's glory passed him by when he was in a little cave in the mountainside. But what do we get? Verse 11, that a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart. It's pyrotechnics. A bit like a Wednesday night. You out and about on Wednesday night. Massive, we haven't had a decent electric storm in London for ages. I thought it was very enormously enjoyable. Actually, I was driving on Wednesday night and um, uh, I got flashed. I thought, oh, what's going on? You know, I'm doing about 20 something miles. It's London. I'm, not, I'm hardly speeding at this. Uh, and then I got flashed again. I thought, this is ridiculous. I racked up 80 quid in about three minutes. Then I realized it was lightning. Um, so it was, it was good, wasn't it? A good electric storm. But nothing compared to this. Verse 11. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, literally a voice, a barely audible voice. And when Elijah heard it, he poured his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what is this? After the fire came literally a voice, a low voice or a barely audible voice, but it's a voice. The same word at the end of verse 12 as in verse 13, a voice said to him. So the contrast seems to be between all these sort of pyrotechnics, the smoke, the fire, the thunder, and the voice of God or the word of the Lord, because it's the same question that the word of the Lord asks in verse 9, that the voice of God asks in verse 13. So do you see the contrast seems to be, you've got all these pyrotechnics, and just the word of the Lord, quietly speaking to Elijah. That seems to be the contrast. 
And we're not told the detail. Maybe, Elijah, you, you want another moment like Carmel? Boom, boom, oh, fire. What you need is, what you need is my, my voice. Elijah, you need the word of the Lord. You don't need signs and wonders anymore, Elijah. You need me to speak to you. And that word comes in detail in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, what are you to do? Well, it's a word of judgment here. So anoint Haziel, king over Aram. He's not even, this is not even Israel. This is a, a, another nation. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. So change the king of Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Ab- Abel-Mehla to succeed you as a prophet. So anoint, you know, say he's in the UK. Anoint the king of whatever France, a new king of England, and a new prophet to succeed you. And what are they going to do? Well, that's a bit bleak. Verse 17, Yehu will put to death any who escaped the sword from Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Yehu. It's a word of judgment. Yet, positively, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All those knees who have not bowed to Baal, whose mouths have not been kissed. So it's as if Elijah says, Ah, look, all right, Lord. I just despair over Israel. I despair over them. You know, you've demonstrated that you're the Lord, and yet still, still what they've done, they've rejected you, they've rejected your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've put the prophets to death, and the Lord says to them, Elijah, I'm not finished yet. Elijah, I'm not finished yet. You need to know, for for those who are abhorrent and wicked, there will be judgment. But there are lots of believers as well. There are lots of people doing the right thing in Israel, Elijah. I'm not finished yet. So go and anoint all these people. Elijah, my plan is greater than you realize. It's greater than you think. But how encouraging, just in that last incident, Elijah goes and he's no doubt a little nervous what is going on here, goes and says, uh, okay, Elisha, you're to come with me. And Elisha says, brilliant. And Elisha's super enthusiastic. He's clearly wealthy. He's got all these oxen. He just burns them, gives it all away and says, yep, what do you want? I'm your man. So there's a little bit of encouragement uh, for Elijah and his despair. So again, I think here, here for the prophet is, well, it's tenderness that equips the despairing. Elijah despairs personally, wants to die, and the Lord raises him up. He despairs of the ministry he's been given. He just... Ah, the nation's gone to rack and ruin, Lord. Don't worry. My plan is not over. Just keep trusting my word. Keep trusting my word, Elijah. I'm not finished yet. My plan is greater than you think. He gives his people what they need to serve him. Last, let's just put it in these terms. Jesus gave up his life, but the Lord raised him up. It's pretty hard to read this passage without thinking of Christ. Can you imagine how extraordinary it would have been for Elijah to be given just a window into the future? If Elijah had been given, I don't know, a copy of Luke's gospel to read before he went through all this, and there as he travels for 40 days and 40 nights through the wilderness, thinks, well, Jesus did this. There he is on the mountain. There's all these pyrotechnics going on. He thinks to himself, yeah, Jesus was taken to the top of a mountain. And actually, after 40 days and 40 nights, when he was exhausted because he hadn't eaten, he was, well, a bit different to me, but he was, he was tempted and, 
and taunted and, and told, why don't you get the angels? I've already had an angel. My experience is, it's bizarrely like that of Jesus. But when I read Luke's gospel, says Elijah, this is anachronism, I know, it can't possibly happen, I know. But when I read Luke's gospel, when he faced all these things I faced, he trusted God. When I've despaired and said, oh, I want to die, take my life, Lord. He didn't do that until, until he willingly went to the cross and said, take my life. Father, into your hands I give my spirit. But he did that not out of despair. He did that to win. He did that to pay for my errors, my mistakes, my sin. Wow. I'm going to trust him. Well, I'm quite looking forward to the bit in Luke chapter 9 when I meet Jesus on top of a mountain again. That's a good bit. I'm there and Moses is there. And uh, we're all the sort of 40 days and 40 people, aren't we? We all meet God on a mountaintop and for 40 years wander or 40 days. You know, we're all the sort of same guys, you know. And um, and what I realized then is, of course, God wasn't finished. It looked bleak in Israel when Ahab and Jezebel were in charge. But there I'll meet Jesus and realize that God had a plan, not just for Israel, but the Lord had a plan for the whole world. But Elijah didn't get any of that. He didn't get Luke's gospel. He had to trust what he knew then. But but you and I get that. We get Luke's gospel. We get Jesus Christ going through much what Elijah did, but willingly saying, I'll lay down my life into your hands I'll commit my spirit. And we can look to him. And not expect, perhaps, fire and smoke and thunder, but trust the word of the Lord that we've got. Trust that the Lord's plan is more than we realize. Oh, you and I can do that. So look, for you and for me, when we're overwhelmed, we need to remember the Lord is tender. We may not have bread baked by an angel for us. But the Lord is tender. He knows what we're like. He knows what we need. He didn't meet Elijah with rebuke. He met Elijah with tenderness. And look, you and I, we need to remember that the Lord's plan is greater than we realize. It certainly was for Elijah. And you and I, we need to hope in God. Turn back to his word. Say with the psalmist, perhaps, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Remember what he's like. Remember how he treats his prophets. Remember, he'll always give his people what they need to keep going. His plan is greater than we realize. When we're overwhelmed, he is tender. So trust him. Let's pray together. Father, here's a strange story. There's so much going on for the history of Israel. All these people being raised up to to judge. The story is set up for for the next decades of Israel's life. And yet so much of it focuses on your your tenderness to your prophet here, Elijah. Thank you for this story. Thank you that you deal in tenderness with your people when they're overwhelmed. And thank you that in those times we can 
Not look to pyrotechnics, but look to your word. Your voice is what we need. Your voice is the encouragement we need to look up, to know your tender, to know that in the Lord Jesus Christ is one who faced certainly all that Elijah did and carried through, who has been overwhelmed almost to the point of despair in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we're still faithful to you. We look to him. We'll be thrilled that we have one who understands us such as him. We trust him. Pray that we would do so in Jesus' name. Amen.